This Elwall's personal development show, Keep Breath Free, welcome. Idia Bure is the content creator of this reasonable to crypto. As a former bond trader, asset swap trader, and broker, he has spent over 20 years in fixing and trading in London, Zurich, and Juniper, where he saw how negative interest rate and competitive reason reflected the total decadence of the established financial order. When he discovered Bitcoin and blockchain, it, little by little, became apparent to him that this new technology had the potential to change the world in ways we can't yet fully imagine, as the printing press or the internet did in their time. Both Didi and I have the intention to make this episode more of an educational piece, without much mark updates. Without further ado, let's get to the fundamental of cryptocurrency with Didier Bowei. Hey Didier, uh, thanks for being on our show. Arrow, pleasure. Nice to meet you. Pleasure to be here. Always a pleasure to please speak to crypto, speak about crypto. Yeah. Yes, as you just mentioned, it is a show, not a show, it is an episode about crypto and maybe perhaps Bitcoin. Can you share with us your background, what led up to this reasonable to crypto and what this is? Why are you creating content over there? Can you talk about it? Yeah, yeah. So uh, before crypto, I had another life because I'm I'm older than you. So I was a uh, I grew up in America, but I've lived in mostly in Switzerland and in and in also in London for several years. And I was in finance. I was a bond trader for many years, and uh, I had some nice years, and it was nice, and it was it was good, and it was fun, and it was profitable. Mm-hmm. And then little by little, uh, business went down. If you like the the golden period for a fixed income trader was probably the uh, the uh, the the crisis in 2009 and 10 and so on that was the yeah. golden period so that's when you made good money and then little by little the amount of money you made as a bond trader went down and it got tripled down to almost zero because of over regulation and because interest rates went to zero so like everybody whose business has gone down to almost zero you start looking for something else to do and i came across like everybody probably i came across crypto coincidentally and at first i thought it was a scam like everybody and then uh the only reason i took it seriously is because somebody i respect a lot and who i think is very bright told me that it wasn't a scam and because it came from him I figured no, I can't tell him. Can I get to, can I get to what, why do you think it is a scam? Well, at the beginning, you think the price was a scam because the price is going up very fast. And here ah. I'm only speaking about specifically about Bitcoin, in fact. And Bitcoin mm. was starting to make the noise and the price was going up fast. And you think it's not based on anything at the beginning <laughs> until you figure <laughs> out what proof of work is, basically. Then you think, before you understand that, you think it's just based on, it's just based on air. It's just like a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> So because it came from somebody very who I respected a lot, I figured I can't tell them it's a scam just because the price is going up fast. So I'm going to have to educate myself to give them a more educated answer. And then I went down the rabbit hole like everybody else. But at this point, it was just 2016, and I'm just talking about Bitcoin. And then sort of Bitcoin is the basis, and then you widen out to other applications. But I have to say, if you're not... If your field is not cryptography or if your field is not distributed mm. systems like the internet you would you won't get it at the beginning it takes a lot of work to get it so i always it's like mm. it's like normal or don't feel bad that you have trouble understanding how it works and what it is because mm. you don't naturally get it unless you are a specialist in 
distributed systems or, or in cryptography, I think. Yeah, so let's turn this episode into a uh, educational piece for the people, maybe just um, got into crypto world. Maybe we just start off with a very broad question. What is the blockchain first? What is the blockchain? Okay. Yes. That's a, that's a good question. Uh, the blockchain is just a database. It's just another way of organizing a database. And mm. like if you think of like Bitcoin, most people maybe not don't even realize that Bitcoin in fact means two different things. If you spell Bitcoin with a capital B, it means Bitcoin blockchain, which is mm. just the database or the ledger of all the transactions. And if you smell it with a if you spell it with a small lowercase b at the beginning, that means mm -hmm. it's the asset, it's the money. So the Bitcoin blockchain is just a database tracking who owns which Bitcoin. It's like if I say to you, mm. the, the, the land registry is just a database tracking who owns which piece of land or which apartment. And the Bitcoin blockchain is just a, a database tracking who owns which Bitcoin. However, it's organized completely differently than in, in the land registry and then any other form of a database. But it's just a database originally, and it's another way of organizing one. Got it. So basically, it is just a database in terms of um, distributed ledger technology. Uh, Correct. Correct. The database, in fact, uh, let's say, it's, again, stick with Bitcoin, it's, it's decentralized. And so mm. decentralized means uh, mm. there's not one single point of failure. And that has one... Uh, that has one tremendous quality that you don't find anywhere else. If you have decentralization, you have censorship resistance, but you only have censorship resistance if you have decentralization. And so you have to organize your database in a way that's decentralized. And uh, I, can, I can get into how it works, but uh, if you like, but that's, uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's the idea, yeah. Yeah, so we have a high level what it is as a Bitcoin and Bitcoin blockchain. How does it work? Uh, the mechanism, what are the main attributes, or even the advantages of Bitcoin? Can you mm, talk about it? Okay. the The advantages, in fact, that there there are two. It's decentralized, so therefore it's censorship resistant, and mm. not no single person controls it. And the amount that's going to be issued is predetermined in the code. So seeing mm. as no single person controls it and the amount that's going to be issued is predetermined in the code, we won't issue more, meaning we won't dilute it. Like all central banks have always diluted their currency, basically mm. they just issue more because all of a sudden we need more money and the government has promised everybody more money, let's just issue more money. Little by little you dilute the money and you... Mm. The same object that used to cost $100 now costs 120 because we've issued 20% more coins or more more money. And that will not happen in Bitcoin because there's no single person who can determine uh, how much is being issued. Everybody running it is checking all the time that we are that we are only issuing the amount that was predetermined. So that gives it the store of value aspect, which is very important. And uh, so it's it's a decentralized database, meaning nobody can censor you and nobody can change the amount that's being issued. Decentralization, it comes from the fact that everybody, that there are many nodes. Nodes just means mm. like a server. It just means like a person who's running the software. The software is 
free and downloadable mm. and it doesn't belong to anybody. So anybody can download it from GitHub and install a node. And uh, I do. And it always maybe sounds intimidating to people who've never done it, but it's getting, it's, it's easy and it's getting easier. So uh, <laughs> once you run a node, you, you, when you want to send Bitcoin or receive Bitcoin, you don't have to hook up to, you hook up to your own node and uh, mm. you, you become another person in the network who validates transactions. So you increase the decentralization more and more instead of everybody going to the bank. Mm. So basically the advantage of Bitcoin is uh, the amount of Bitcoin is limited because it is the P determined by the code. If I remember correctly, it is 21 million or something else. And then uh, because of the limited amount of uh, Bitcoin uh, predetermined, so it won't lead to uh, inflation. So uh, we'll go deeper, right? And then you just uh, mentioned about uh, anyone can download uh, Bitcoin of, and set up a lock on their local machine and become uh, a lock in the network. And, can you talk about the mechanism behind it, the proof of uh, work, uh, how Bitcoin works behind the scene to make it decentralized, to make it uh, great as a currency? Okay, I'll, okay, I'll get into the technicals and I'll try to make it understandable and not too technical. Uh, mm. First, I'll give you the two, you know, Bitcoiners, the people who write the code and who implemented the beginning were all like computer programmers. And those guys are, are terrible at marketing. So they always come up with these terrible terms that always intimidate people who don't understand it. And, uh, and they get put up. So it's like the double spend problem and the Byzantine generals problem. And when you hear that and you're not a programmer, you get put off right away and it sounds intimidating. Mm. And in fact, the problems aren't that complicated. So how... If you like, how do you make a decentralized network? So let, let's let's take the analogy again of the land registry. Like the land registry, okay, a decentralized network or Bitcoin, it, the general principle is you don't have one person controlling it because you have everybody checking it. So I sometimes mm. make the analogy, it's like we're going to play football, but there's not going to be an empire, umpire. So how does that work? It works because every single player is checking that every other player is playing by the rules and that nobody is off sides so that so every every and if you think that another player is cheating you ignore him and you don't pass him the ball and you tell your friends that you think he's cheating so quickly you only have a only have a consensus of people who are playing football who all think that they're all playing correctly so what does that mean so that means like in the bitcoin blockchain every single node everybody who has the software is checking every single transaction of everybody and making sure it's legitimate. It's like saying I run a node that checks, I don't know, the land registry of Hong Kong and every single person in Hong, I check every single operation mm. of every single real estate transaction in Hong Kong, not just my own, but everybody's. And I make sure that they're all valid and I make sure that they are all, uh, that they're, they're legit and I, when i think somebody's cheating i tell everybody else i think that guy's cheating so if you like one of the basic principles of, of blockchain is you have no central point of control because you ask everybody to check the same thing which makes it extraordinarily redundant but so so then the idea the whole problem again now i'm trying to try to get into this idea of double spend and, and byzantine general 
So the double spend problem meant like, what are we passing around in the Bitcoin blockchain? We're passing around Bitcoin and Bitcoin's purely virtual. It's, there's no physical piece of paper. So, uh, so it's a file, if you like it, you can represent it like a file in a computer system. And in a computer system, you can reproduce a file infinitely and there's no loss of, uh, there is no loss of uh, quality, mm. right? So you Got can it. reproduce a piece. So if I, if you have the, the whole idea, the whole problem, this is the, the Byzantine general's problem is if you have many people who all have the same database, in other words, the Bitcoin blockchain, mm. How do you make sure that they all have the same version of the blockchain, right? And let's just, again, go back to the land registry. If there are five people who have a copy of the land registry and they all have to uh, register every single transaction, one guy over there has sold something and one node over there has heard about it and I haven't heard about it. And then the third <laughs> node might know that. So how do we make sure that all the different versions of the database have the same data? Especially if you consider that one person might say, ah, I sold them in my apartment. And then the next day he comes back and say, in fact, I didn't sell it. I sold it to the other guy. Mm. So if you like, how do we make sure that all the versions of the database are the same? And especially considering you have to presume there, there are people who are going to be dishonest in there. That's the Byzantine general's problem. How do we coordinate all the versions of the database and make yes. sure that there's the same, considering that there some people are going to be drawn. That's basically speaking the Byzantine general problem. And the double spend problem is the idea that what we're exchanging in the exchange is a digital file and you can reproduce a digital file indefinitely without any loss of quality. So how do I know that the guy who said, it's, I, I'm sending you my Bitcoin and then the next day I send again the same file to somebody else. So I've double spent the Bitcoin. It's a little bit like saying I have a bank account with a checking, I have a checking account. Nobody uses checks, but I have $100 in the checking account and I write, a check for $100 to person A, and I write a check for $100 to person B. So I've written $200 worth mm. of checks. Who's going to get his money? Well, the person who gets his money is the first guy who goes to the bank, and the second guy realizes he got screwed. That's the double spend problem. So how do you resolve the two problems at once? So mm. that was, in fact, the, the, the discovery of the revolution, right? The double spend problem and the Byzantine generals problem. So mm. the, the double spend problem was... was solved by the idea that you have UTXOs. So mm -hmm. a UTXO is like a number that you'll put on a, each, each Bitcoin has something called a UTXO, which stands for unspent transaction output. Again, this is computer speak and they're terrible at marketing. Uh, <laughs> uh, so unspent transaction output is just like, you can think of it like a serial number on a, on a, on a dollar bill or on yeah. a bill. And every everyone is different for every transaction. So if you think of even again, if I make the the the, the analogy like this, if I say like the database is like we're trading shares on the exchange, like mm -hmm. if I say the shares of company whatever A whatever company Nestle mm -hmm. shares or Apple shares, for every every Nestle Apple share has the same number in the database, mm -hmm. and when you trade it and when you buy and sell it. The, the number stays the same. So all the yes. whatever, 20 million shares there are, they all have the same number. Mm. And every time you trade it, the number stays the same. Bitcoin is different. Bitcoin mm. is the UTX, UTXO system. Each UTXO or piece of Bitcoin has a unique UTXO. And when mm. I trade it, it changes. So if I mm. have three shares of Nestle, they all have the same number in the database, one, two, three, let's say one. 
And when I trade them, the number stays one. With Bitcoin, I have three different like numbers, one, two, three. And when I trade them, they change. They become four, five, six. Yeah. So that's how you that's how you solve the double spend problem. Mm. And then the the <laughs> this is <laughs> then the the Byzantine generals problem a little bit. How do we make sure that everybody has the same version of the database? Yes. So. Uh, the basic principle is you ask everybody to check the same thing, meaning every node is checking every single operation. Uh, and how do I make sure that the blocks don't change? In other words, if somebody comes back to me a day later and says, well, in fact, I didn't sell it to person A, I sold it to person B. Uh, let's change that. And then three mm -hmm. people over there updated in their database, but the other guy over there they didn't update it and they still have the previous transaction in their database so how do you lock that all in so it doesn't move all the time and that's what proof of work does mm. but proof of work is uh, that's not i'm happy to spend the explanation but it's easier with a piece of paper it's a long explanation of how a um, how you find the nonce mm. uh, they, I don't know if you want me to explain that or or that <laughs> <laughs> gets That's technical, cool. but I'm happy, I'm happy to explain it, but it gets technical again. I don't know how deep you want to go. That's cool. For the reason if you really want to dive deep into technical part, uh, read the uh, Satoshi white paper uh, published in 2009, and then, uh, but I feel high level uh, what DDA just talked about is really good enough for us to, uh, okay. yeah, go down to the rabbit hole of uh bitcoin because we, we just talk about bitcoin so let's stick with bitcoin uh but okay. yeah you just talk about proof of work and then it is a very clever way to deal with uh to resolve the uh general uh byzantine uh, problem and also the double spending problem right but uh, there are so many critics out there they challenge it uh proof of work uh the bitcoin blockchain consume a lot of energy it is like uh uh, they are, the Bitcoin blockchain at the very beginning is designing the slowest computer in the world <laughs> because of yeah. how they uh, how they work with proof of work. So can you uh, is there is it my uh, is my statement legit? Uh, does Bitcoin uh, really consume a lot of energy in terms of computing power and how, or maybe even for a some number how much energy does Bitcoin consume now ah okay the, the numbers i don't have in front of me so i haven't looked recently <laughs> it does consume a lot of energy which i don't consider a problem at all but uh it does consume a lot of energy they say as much as the country of ireland or the country of switzerland yeah but uh, so why do I not consider that a problem? First of all, what's the energy being used for? So I didn't really get into too much of proof of work, but the whole point of proof of work is that you stabilize all the versions of the database so that they're all the same and that you cannot change them afterwards. You give it immutability by date proof of work. Because if you want to change an old transaction, you have to go reproduce all the proof of work undo the old one and reproduce it so it costs a tremendous amount of energy so if you like the energy serves as a, a mechanism for giving security to the database so first of all you use energy for what well you use it for the security of the database meaning you cannot change it mm -hmm. and that's tremendously important uh why 
Because, for example, if you are an opposition leader to the regime of whatever, Bashar Assad or Putin, and Putin says, I don't like Didier, let's get rid of him. And the, the account, the, the bank account he has, take the, he calls the bank, the head of the bank, and he says, take the money out of the account or out of the account of his political party and send it to my account. And the guy and the, and the bank will do that because it requires little energy to just update a number in, in their centralized database. In Bitcoin, you can't because you have to redo all the operations that have come since I got the money. You have to undo it and redo them. And that requires a tremendous amount of energy. So he, basically, it's, it's the security that it's one of the reasons you have the security that you can't change the system. And so that's the importance of it, right? So compare it. I mean, gold mining, mining gold, physical gold consumes, I think, like four and a half times more energy than Bitcoin. The banking system worldwide consumes like 10 times more energy worldwide. So, you know, first of all, what's the utility of it? The utility of it is it increases, it makes the transactions immutable and that gives security. And number two is it in fact doesn't consume nearly as much as other things that people never consider like mining gold or, I mean, in a lot of countries, people will tell you, ah, I don't think my government does a very good job of doing what it's supposed to do, but your government consumes a ton of energy uh, for its computers and for other things. So, you know, what's the utility of the energy is, is number one. Number two, you know, mm. Bitcoin can be very green for several reasons, but I mean, just Hydro-Quebec, the, the hydro plant in Quebec produces twice as much energy as the whole Bitcoin network needs. So the amount of green energy that's available is certainly enough to fulfill uh, the needs of Bitcoin. So, uh, you know, Bitcoin, a lot of people like it for, in the press, you don't read this, but mm. a lot of people like it for green reasons. And the reason it can be very green is because there are two main reasons. One is you can put a Bitcoin mining rig anywhere, meaning you can put it right next to the source of power, meaning you don't have to transfer the power, the energy from wherever it's made, like a hydroelectric plant or solar power or wherever. Usually solar power and these things, the green energy exists where nobody lives. So then you have the problem of transferring the energy. And you don't have this in Bitcoin because you can put the, the mining rig right next to the source of power. Number two is it's very easy to turn on and off. And so, the advantage is most of the time green energy produces more energy than you need and not necessarily at the time that you need it, right? Like the sun doesn't shine. Most people, the greatest demands of energy in the city are just in the morning and then in the evening and the sun's shining mostly at 12, right? So you, you the problem often with energy is you produce more than you want and when you don't need it, and then when you need it, you can't produce it. So. Uh, a Bitcoin mining rig, you can turn it on and off easily. And Bitcoin miners are very happy to buy energy from green producers that's over overproduction. Uh, because in fact, in, in, in Bitcoin mining, the greatest input price is the power of energy. And so, of course, they want the cheapest energy. And the cheapest energy is energy that nobody wants that people are going to throw away. So green miners or solar power producers or whatever, they're going to throw away a lot of their energy and Bitcoin miners are happy to are happy to buy that. So I know people who very much believe in Bitcoin mining as a way of overbuilding your green energy supply 
Oh. By, uh, you you overbuild it because you give the, the producers a way to monetize their extra production by mm. mining Bitcoin. And so it makes it economically interesting for them to overbuild uh, whatever uh, solar power mm. plant or whatever. And then they can satisfy, because they've overbuilt it, they can satisfy the, the city's needs at peak hours and things like that. So that's, mm. uh, that's why I think there's, you know, there's way too much FUD and people never talk about that. So um, I got your point, but how do you think about uh, the, because we were talking about the energy consumption by become mining, and there are so many different types of uh, so-called mechanism or consensus mechanisms even the face in the blockchain world, say like proof of work come later with Ethereum or some other, uh, uh, with the proof of stake, uh, those kind of a shot or in the layer one sharding, uh, how to uh, make the uh, consensus, uh, come up with the consensus more easily uh, so that we can consume less computing power uh, for the uh, consensus process. How do you think about that? Or maybe you can talk about some difference between maybe even proof of stake or proof of work. Yeah, sure. Um... Well, I think proof of work is the most uh, fairest and decentralized one. Mm. And proof of stake basically leads straight back to centralization. And I'll explain why in a second. That isn't necessarily a problem, but it's a problem mm. if the quality that you want is censorship resistance. Then you don't want to lead back to centralization. So why do I think proof of stake leads back to centralization? Because okay. proof of in proof mm. of stake, you need mm. coins in proof of stake if you are a coin holder you sacrifice it well you put up some coins and you take all the transactions you put them in a block and you propose it to the blockchain okay and basically you don't spend any energy trying to perform proof of work um uh, why is that uh, leads to centralization because in proof of stake the, the idea in proof of stake is you put up or you stake some of your coins mm -hmm. you're going to get the fees from performing a block and then you get mm -hmm. your coins back so the mm -hmm. incentive to not cheat is the incentive of the idea that you're going to put up more coins than you're going to get fees so if you mm. hope to get you know 20 dollars in fees you put up 50 dollars worth of coins and if you're caught cheating you lose your 50 dollars worth of coins but if you're not caught cheating it's basically risk-free you're going to get your 20 dollars worth of, of fees risk-free mm. So the idea, that's that's the idea of how you incentivize people not to cheat. You ask them to put up a bigger stake than they're going to make in fees. And the, mm. there's basically a 100% chance they're going to get their fees if they don't cheat, right? So uh, the, the problem with proof of stake is first you need coins to stake. And in mm -hmm. proof of work, you don't need any coins to perform proof of work. You just need mining equipment. So when you perform staking, mm -hmm. the, if you have, I don't know, 60% of the coins, they tell you always we're going to choose randomly stakers among coin holders but if you mm. own 60 percent of the coins in my book you're going to get chosen randomly 60 percent of the time uh, mm. and you're going to get more coins because you're going to get paid in fees so little by mm. little you're going to end up owning the whole network so mm. the idea is that it's faster and it consumes less energy but for me it leads straight back to centralization which mm -hmm. isn't necessarily a problem if censorship resistance isn't your most important criteria so uh, so everybody wants to go to proof of stake because it's faster and consumes less mm. energy. And, you know, the other thing is like, 
I don't know. If you take like Ethereum, they're going to go to proof of stake uh, yeah. soon. That we've been hearing that for three years, and one day it will happen. But one day it will happen. You know, <laughs> it, was <supposed laughs> it was supposed to happen last year, and then it was supposed to happen the first quarter of this year, and then it was supposed to happen the second quarter of this year, and now it's uh, I don't know what I heard last July or August, whatever. But one day it will happen, hmm. and. Uh, so to be a validator, in, in Ethereum, they have two levels. They have what they call stakers and validators. So to become a validator, to run your own node and validate and do proof of stake, you need to have at least, I think it's 131 or 132 coins. So Ether coins of Ether. So let's say Ether is more or less $2,000 today. So that's what, more or less $260,000. So you have to have at least $260,000 worth of coins, of Ether coins, to be a validator. So that's... Mm -hmm. Most people are not going to do that. So that's already a form of centralization. But if you're a staker and you have less than that, you can stake your coins with a validator and they'll give you mm -hmm. some remuneration for it. So who's offering staking services? It's people like Kraken and Coinbase and the major exchanges. And they take a small fee for that. So uh, meaning the money is going to get centralized with them again. Uh, <laughs> so again, it's a form of centralization. So. Uh, like I said, uh, it's not a problem. Just don't try to sell me a decentralized censorship-resistant blockchain if that's what you want. Mm. Stick, with, stick with something else. So uh, th that's why I don't really like proof of mm. stake, but I mean, I don't have a mm. problem with it depending on the application. Sharding is another idea. Sharding is also the idea of trying to uh, increase the speed of the blockchain. So mm. by sharding, we mean we split it up into pieces. Uh, so meaning not everybody validates every single bit that mm. every single transaction you know in bitcoin basically we're just sending money in in so the transactions are quite simple ethereum has smart contracts so what you can do in ethereum is much more elaborate so mm. there's a lot more to validate so instead of in in bitcoin every node validates every single transaction. In Ethereum, seeing as what we have to validate is more elaborate and more sophisticated, there's more to do. So let's do some sharding. Sharding means let's split up the blockchain so that different people uh, validate different things, and then we'll recompose it. We'll put it back all mm -hmm. together. So that, that has nothing to do with energy, but it has to do with mm. trying to speed things up by asking, you know, mm. you do this third and I'll do that third and somebody else will do the other part of the blockchain and we'll recompose it. That's what charting is. Got it. So mm. Mm, what we were just talking about, uh, I, first of all, I agree with your point that proof of stake uh, kind of like uh, sacrifice a little bit of the uh, uh decentralization so that it can uh save uh a certain amount of uh energy consumption i agree with that point and uh but however let's not go too deep into the protocol uh per se because from the investor side uh like what you just mentioned uh, no matter how much energy consumed by the uh blockchain i am just an investor and then all i'm looking at bitcoin is the investor uh, uh the investment instrument value so if from the investor perspective mm, should i really consider energy consumption something i need to consider uh maybe i don't care about the world i just care about my money <laughs> uh what what do i have yeah 
energy, is energy consumption even a thing for me to consider? No, I would say no. I don't consider mm. it at all. First of all, because energy consumption will become more and more green. Mm. And uh, in fact, people are attracted by price. And, you know, I think the price will, you know, I'm one of these guys who says the price will be way above a million dollars if you wait long enough. So what is long enough? I don't know. It's two more housing probably. I don't know. Within the next 10 or 12 years, I, I can see it well above, well above 500, probably way above a million too. It's a question mm. of time. And, and the reason I think it will have value is because it is the separation of money from state. So it's not controlled by any state. Mm. And it's provable digital scarcity, uh, meaning it, well, it's digital, it's scarce, and it's provable. It's provably scarce because every single Bitcoin in the Bitcoin blockchain, you can trace it back to the minute it was mined. And there are no other ones in the Bitcoin blockchain. So it's a little bit like if I say to you, every painting by Da Vinci, I can trace it back to Da Vinci. He's only going to pay 21 million in his life. They've already printed about 19 million. And uh, and you're never going to be deluded because if you're going to be deluded, uh, it's called a fork and it's no longer Bitcoin. So... Uh, that's why it, people will, you know, there's also a question of timing, you know, a lot of things in, in the world have a question to do with timing. So you have these two sort of op opposing uh, currents at the same time. You have the current of provable digital scarcity. Okay, everything becomes digital. So now we define things digitally. So Bitcoin is a digital form of scarcity as opposed to a physical one like gold. Uh, so on the one hand, you have this current of provable scarcity that people find attractive. And on the other hand, you have governments that print money forever, uh, especially in Europe and the U.S., but probably China also has a tremendous amount of debt, you know, so they also print money to cover their debt. So, uh, uh, the, the, so people want the opposite, you know. On the one hand, there's that. And... Um, yeah, so, uh, so I think uh, uh, I heard a good one from, uh, from I think, Michael Saylor when they asked him, yeah, the person, I don't know, who lives in London who sends money to his cousin in El Salvador or in the Philippines. Uh -huh. Is the guy in the Philippines going to keep it in sats? Is he going to keep it in local currency or keep it in dollars, the, the one who receives the sats from his cousin in wherever, mm. in the West or wherever? And his answer was pretty good. I would have a tendency to agree with that. He said, well, it depends what he plans on doing with the money. If he plans yes. on spending it in the next day or two, he'll probably convert it to local currency and spend the local currency. If he plans on storing it in his savings account for, I don't know, three to six months, he might convert it to dollars. And if mm. he plans on holding it for the long term, as long-term savings, he'll probably keep it in SAS. Plus, like getting also back to why I think it has value, it has value as censorship resistance, meaning it's not controlled by a government. And the Americans now, by 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 basically cutting Russia off the SWIFT payment network and cutting Russia off the dollar payment system, they basically told you, we can censor you. If you, we don't like you, we'll cut you out of the dollar system. So people mm. want a payment mechanism that is independent of a country. So they will, they will, because of that, they will fall back to, to crypto and the most decentralized mm. one and the censorship resistant one is Bitcoin. Plus it's provably scarce. So that's why I think in the long term, 
that's mm. that's the fundamental long-term value of it for me mm. and that's why i think the price will go up but that's you know each has its own opinion that's my opinion mm. got it so basically we are reinforcing the uh, opinion of uh the bitcoin whatever other uh, cryptocurrencies the true value of it it is not owned by the government and no one can cut you out of this system because i don't like you or whatever that you have done with the uh financial system so perhaps we can add this session with this burning question uh from the investor perspective so we have many many cryptocurrency now it is basically an asset class if someone uh say like the gen c or even the millennial comes to this space uh, i don't have much financial knowledge what hell is that and how does someone like them or maybe not not these little guys or some people uh like in my age i'm uh, gen i'm gen gen y or gen, gen x i don't know and then how does someone judge what kinds of crypto to invest that's the burning question <laughs> uh, yeah well it's always depends if you want to make a quick buck and maybe lose your money or mm. it depends if you want to make a long-term investment so if you want to make a long-term investment i say bitcoin or potentially ethereum which i see is something completely different than bitcoin uh, and if you want to make a short-term buck you can speculate so just to have you you know uh, we're always everybody wants to make a quick buck and in crypto there's a lot of a lot of volatility and a lot of things that go up very fast most of them have no value but they still go up very fast so people are attracted by that because they want to make money quickly so often sometimes you can make money very quickly but often you lose it just as quickly after uh you know i i was at a conference the other day and somebody was telling me uh who manages a crypto fund he was saying that somebody suggested that in their crypto fund they ought to invest in this and this coin i won't mention it and uh and he looked at it and he said but this is a ponzi scheme i, I won't invest in that <laughs> and then uh, and he studied it and he you know broke it down and he thought it was stupid and ridiculous and he said the next time he looked at the price of the coin it was up 50 times so of course he, he, he missed out on 50 times <laughs> your money in, in in like one, one or two months so of course he regrets it everybody regrets it but i'm sure yeah. you know i'm sure yeah. it'll, at the next market crash it'll come crashing down so uh, long term i you know mm. uh, you know there are people in bitcoin who can tell you they remember when the price went from 32 to 6 and then it went from 6 mm. to 100 and then it went from 100 to 40 and then it went from 40 you know so it just takes longer but i think it'll be around ethereum i have to say i like but i see it as completely different i consider it like a a, a platform on which you do dapps mm -hmm. because the idea is let's have a decentralized database but let's do a lot more elaborate things than just payments so I consider it like an Android or a Mac OS, but it's not owned by anybody. So it's like you throw up your app or you throw up your DAP on on Ethereum, and it's like your it's like your app store plus your cloud service, both in one, mm -hmm. and it's not owned by anybody. So th that's what it is, in my opinion. And mm -hmm. people will use it. I mean, when you look at the amount of People always hear about Solana and Cardano and Polkadot mm. and all these other things. But when you look at the actual number of applications and total value locked, there's like 
Ethereum and Ethereum forks is like 95% or something. It's like 90%. So people mm -hmm. hear a lot about the other ones, but then when you look at how much they're actually used, it's often a lot smaller than than Ethereum. Mm -hmm. So Ethereum is like really like the Google of you know and everybody mm -hmm. else is whatever, Alta Vista or whatever. So so we'll see. If you want to, I'm sure there's still going to be a lot of innovation. So if you want to look mm -hmm. at projects, but uh, I don't have any that I recommend right now. I, I have to say, <laughs> even when this fellow told me the other day that the Ponzi scheme made 50 times its money in whatever, a couple of months, of course you're attracted. But, but uh, you know, out of that, many, many just disappear and you know, mm -hmm. never come back. Fair enough. Uh, and which is a very great answer to my question, because if I were you, I will kind of like, I don't want to say you, uh, it's, uh, it's a king question, but uh, I think the caveat to the listener is wherever you are going to invest in, uh, get educated yourself first, because basically what you're doing is educating the listeners. Hey, you are doing investment. You are not doing uh, speculation. I think that's the most important point that you are trying to make. Yeah, that's what I think. When I look at somebody who speaks to me about crypto, I, I first the first thing I notice is is he talking to me about technology or is he talking to me about price? Mm. And then I right away know his angle. Number one and number two is, um, yeah, I mean, if you don't do your education, I mean, you might get lucky in the short term, but you won't. It won't work in the long term mm. to make it in to survive in the long term. You have to be a little bit more educated. Yeah. But it's true. Sometimes you do make a lot of money fast, but then if you're not educated, you'll probably lose it fast too. Yes, totally agree. So, thank you so much, DDA. Uh, it is a great talk revolving around the topics about crypto, uh, Bitcoin, and Ethereum, wherever crypto uh, currencies at in this asset class. Thank you so much for being on our show. Okay, it was my pleasure. Speak soon.